them to the book of Galatians, where we are continuing our series. This letter, Paul, to the Galatian church, um, which really just makes clear um, text after text, this gospel, this gospel that we are so grateful for, the good news of Jesus Christ. So this morning we are going to be in Galatians 2, and we're going to read verses 11 through 14. 11 through 14. All right. But when Cephas came to Antioch, and I forgot to explain this last week, Cephas, simply a different translation of the name Peter, Aramaic name for Peter. So you can read Peter when you see Cephas. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came back, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew... Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your living and active word, sharper than a two-edged sword, which can discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart. I pray that your word would be no less active this morning, that it would pierce our hearts, that it would bring conviction and that it would be, bring transformation to our lives and that we would come away this morning in awe of you saying how great is our God and how wonderful this gospel in which we hope. We pray that you would be with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start this morning by kind of a, a quiz. It's like a pop quiz, but don't, don't fret. It's not like the type... In school, but I want to read some quotes uh, from the New Testament, uh, from the Book of Acts. Some quotes from the Book of Acts, and let's see if you can identify who the speaker of these quotes is. So let me start with this: Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. To Him, Jesus. The prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The next one. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Next. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in his way? And finally, We must obey God rather than men. Anybody know who boldly declared these words? Any guesses? Peter. I'm hearing a lot of Peter. The same Peter in this passage this morning that is kind of shrinking back and withdrawing. I can just imagine the headline in the Antioch Baptist Messenger that week. Chief Apostle from Jerusalem flip-flops on his stance to the Gentiles creating mass confusion concerning the gospel. I think 
It's very easy for us to make Peter kind of a whipping boy as we see his behavior throughout the scriptures. Peter was the one who actually first confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. But then just moments later, not understanding the big picture, tried to stop Jesus from his mission to go to the cross. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Has anybody here ever been called Satan? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Peter was also the one who set out to meet Jesus when he was walking on the water. But then again, in a moment of weakness, when the wind began to pick up, he started to lose faith and he sunk. And Jesus said to him, oh, you of little faith. And Peter was also the one who said to Jesus, I will never deny you. I will never deny you. Then on the night that Jesus went to the cross, he ended up denying him three times. And now here we find him backpedaling on his word after he has received a direct revelation from God that the gospel is freely available to the Gentiles. In a moment of weakness, he's shrinking back once again. I think Peter's actions that they just seem to always leave us looking down with our bird's eye view and, and in one moment saying, yes, Peter, go, go, Peter. And then the next moment saying, oh, no, 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 Peter, don't do that. Don't do that. He seems to, to fluctuate so frequently between the bold and the daring Peter, the one who's re- willing to follow Christ to the end of the world, to the cowering, doubting, even denying Peter. But I think it's for all these reasons, and I'm so grateful that the the scriptures deal honestly with the human condition. For all these reasons, I think Peter is probably one of the most relatable people in all of the scriptures for us as Christians. You see, at at moments of inspiration, maybe after a sermon on a Sunday morning or a very empowering quiet time, a time of devotion in the morning or a Christian conference, you come with your chest out ready to do battle. For Jesus, ready, on fire to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But then what happens? You get back to work. You go to school. You start to hang out with some friends and family who don't exactly share the same convictions that you share. And it's like an air. I mean, it's like a balloon filled with air that's being let out. Just sputtering out of control, being deflated. Now, there are a few perspectives that we could take on this text today, a few ways that we could come out at this this story, this passage. And one of those would be to hold up Paul, as we should, but but to hold up Paul as a courageous Christian hero who held true to the gospel in the face of fear, even when it meant challenging one of the key leaders to the church. That's one way that we could come at this text. Another way is we could focus on Peter, as an example of conduct that is unbecoming of the truth of the gospel. So we could place our focus on the negative example of Peter. But what I want to do with our time, the rest of the time that we have here, is I want to offer a third way for us to look at this event. And this way both acknowledges Paul's courage, his gospel courage, yet also deals honestly with Peter's cowardice. Yet rather than placing all of the focus on one man, on Paul, or on Peter, I instead want to shine the light on the power of the gospel. The gospel which produced the courage in Paul, and yet the gospel at the same time which is big enough to cover the weakness of Peter. 
the weakness that we all experience from day to day. You see, Paul and Peter were just two men who were set apart by God, just two men, both susceptible to the same temptations we face today, both with insecurities and frailties that reminded them often of their need for Jesus. I would guess there is not a single one of us here who has not at one time felt ashamed of the gospel and shrunk back with fear when faced with the opportunity to either share it with others or the opportunity to stand up for Christ and to stand up for the truth. We fear man, right? We do this. We all struggle with this. And this is a passage that I think is just further evidence for us of this struggle that we all face today. This struggle, how the fear of man, if you're following along in the headings in your note, how the fear of man can cripple our courage. How the fear of man can cripple our courage and at the same time cripple the freedom that we have in Christ. So let me just set the scene for you uh, concerning the church at Antioch. This was a very special place that you need to know about, the church in Antioch. Antioch was an integral city in the Roman Empire, one of the key cities uh, to control in the Roman Empire. It was the third most populous city. Uh, historians think about three to 500,000 people resided in the city of Antioch. Uh, this was one of the most culturally diverse cities. It was a mixture of Jews, Greeks, Islanders, native Syrians, Africans, Christians. And what's so neat is that the church here, the church at Antioch, even as we read about it in the book of Acts, the church was also reflective of this same cultural diversity. Just in the church alone, the church leadership, we learn about people from Jewish backgrounds, from Cyprus. We learn about persecuted Christians fleeing from Jerusalem. It was a, it was a whole diverse mixture. Antioch was also a place of great persecution against the Jews under the emperor Caligula. At the same time, it was a refugee city for Christians who were fleeing the persecution in Jerusalem. And historians now tell us that the population was so diverse at this time, that, and it was so uh, politically and religiously, uh, that the tensions were just so high, they actually erected walls to divide the city into four different quarters to separate everybody out. Walls to separate the Greeks from the Jews, from the Romans, from the native Syrians. But the gospel was beginning to change all of this at the church in Antioch. You see, in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility had been broken down between Jew and Gentile. We learn about that in Ephesians 2. The gospel was breaking down the barriers of race, the barriers of politics, the barriers of class. As Christians, we're all beginning to worship together under one banner, under one name, Jesus Christ. So the church in Antioch, think of it kind of like a foretaste of that picture in Revelations where people, Revelation where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered around the throne, all worshiping Jesus together. What Christian in their right mind would want to mess with that? Who would want to interrupt that, right? I mean, this must have driven Satan crazy to see a church so unified in, in, in Christ that they're no longer held back by all the things that typically want to divide us, right? Whenever a church is thriving like this, know that the devil is on the prowl. 
If people come into this gathering and they sense a unity that can't be found anywhere else but in Christ, guess what? Satan is not happy with what's going on there. And he wants to come in and devour us. So now he thinks, if I can just get Peter, if I can get Peter, the chief apostle of the church, to fall for this scheme. Oh man, there goes the whole church, right? It was one of the early church leaders, Tertullian, who once claimed, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. So wherever persecution is, it causes the church to just grow and spread. You can't snuff the church out. Well, I think if the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church, then the weed killer, the roundup of the church, must surely be bickering over matters which muzzle the gospel and restrict our freedom in Christ. So like this uncontrollable weed, the gospel is now spreading all over the world and Antioch becomes this hub from which the mission of Christ is being taken to the nations. And Satan is thinking, I got to go get my bottle of Roundup and spray this thing out. I got to put this thing to an end. So what happens? In comes the official delegation from the Jerusalem church, from the mother church, from the hub of the movement, the base camp. They've come in to infiltrate the good things that are going on in Antioch, to spy out the freedom of the church. This church that is a thriving gospel-centered fellowship that's just pulsating with gospel joy. And now Peter is already there, right? Peter is already enjoying this fellowship. Here in Antioch, he's joined these non-Jewish Christians in table fellowship. Picture it like a potluck dinner. They're all sitting around the table enjoying the fellowship of one another because remember he knows that Christ has already broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile that everyone is free to come to Christ so you picture this Peter reclining and maybe he's eating his tabbouleh and flatbread and maybe some of the foods that he had not yet even discovered because now what was once forbidden is now freely accessible and he can enjoy it He's conversing with friends. He's reminiscing about his time with Jesus. They're all rejoicing in their freedom together. I imagine the Gentiles are just hanging on his every word. This guy has been with our Savior. This guy was there during the transfiguration. This guy was there when he fed the 5,000. And now he's eating here with us. How cool is this? A beautiful picture of this once impossible unity now made possible by the Holy Spirit. And then, like one of those moments where everything just comes to a screeching halt, Peter receives the word, maybe a tap on his shoulder. Uh, Peter, there's some men here who say they want to see you. And all of a sudden, Peter is ready to withdraw, to shrink back from this fellowship because of the fear of man. We're not told exactly what he feared about this circumcision party, about these Judaizers. Maybe it was just that he would be made a fool to be fellowshipping in the way that he was with these Gentiles, these possibly unclean people in their minds. Maybe he feared for his life. Maybe he thought his life was in danger, but maybe it was just disapproval from other church leaders who hadn't quite worked this whole thing out yet. Paul simply tells us that he drew back and separated from the Gentiles because he feared this group of men from this circumcision party. The fear of man, much like in his denial moment 
in this new moment of weakness had overtaken him and now he was scared. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there so bold in your faith with your Christian friends, but then acting apart whenever someone else comes into the conversation? I know I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty of this several times over. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man, it's a trap. It's a trap from the evil one. It lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. I can tell you that in moments like these, it will always be easier to just go along with the crowd. It will always feel easier to just do what everyone else is doing. But remember, if that is a denial of the gospel, or if that is a denial of the character of God, then it is a trap. Stay away. Avoid the trap and find safety in God. I think how much we need to be so filled up with the word of God and so fixated on the glory and goodness of God that we're ready to stiff arm every obstacle to our freedom in Christ. How we need to know the gospel so well and that's why we're preaching it week after week and in, and in Sunday school and reminding each other day after day how we need to know it so well and preach it to ourselves daily that we become fortified against the joy-stealing, freedom-forfeiting, shifty schemes of Satan. Peter here, I think, is inebriated at this point by the fear of man. He's paralyzed by the fear of man. He's ready in this moment. He's not thinking rationally. He's ready to trade away his freedom in the gospel for the preservation of his life and his reputation. The fear of man like a trap had come to cripple his courage and threaten the very freedom that the church was now enjoying. But Paul knew what was at stake. Paul understood clearly what was at stake. And so much so that he thought, this is worth risking my friendship with one of the chief apostles of the church and risking fellowship with Peter, a pillar of the church. Paul, For Paul, the courage that he found in the gospel was strong enough to conquer all fear. The courage that he found in the gospel was strong enough to conquer the fear of man. Paul could see the potential train wreck, train wreck, excuse me, that lie ahead. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher in England, once described Paul's perspective like this. He knew that in, in comparison to losing him, his friendship, this far outweighed that risk, the most dangerous of all scandals, that the church would be torn apart, that Christian liberty was in danger, that the doctrine of the grace of Christ was overthrown, and therefore this public offense must be publicly corrected. Must be publicly corrected. Paul tells us that he opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. He stood condemned. These are very sharp words that he's using here. Basically, Paul is saying, Peter, I am not going to let you get away with this. You are trampling on the freedom of my Gentile brothers. These guys look up to you. You're a hero to them. Look, even Barnabas is being led astray by what you're doing here. I don't care what your position in the church is. Your actions are denying the very gospel you've been entrusted to preach. So he says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, 
and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter, how can you enjoy the freedom you've been given in Christ and at the same time deny it to others just because they were born differently than you? See, Paul was acting in step with the truth of the gospel, acting in step with the freedom of the gospel, not with what was best for his physical safety, not with what would be best for his reputation, but in view of what was essential to preserve the freedom of the Christian church. A church born by the gospel, a church sustained by the gospel, and a church entrusted with spreading the gospel. This gospel that all who entrust their lives to Jesus are set free from the oppression of sin. All who have entrusted their lives to Jesus are set free from slavery to self-righteousness. And all who entrust their lives to Christ Jesus are set free from obeying the passions of the flesh. And all are set free from the fear of man overcoming them. He's thinking, as he says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave himself up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Now, I want to pose a question this morning. Would you say that by Paul publicly opposing Peter and calling him out, saying that he stands condemned, would you say that he was acting in love toward Peter here? That he loved Peter? I think many today would would look at this text and they would say, well, that wasn't very nice. I mean, aren't we told praise in public and then reprimand in private? Correction in private? But I want you to think about this from the perspective of what's at stake. From the perspective of preserving gospel freedom. So I thought of this, this example, this illustration. Let's say that the time was the 1860s, 1870s, and and you are living as a former slave, now freed, now freed from your slave owner, and you find yourself living in the north. And not only that, but your former slave owner, he had come to, to faith in Christ, and he had come to repentance, and come to reject everything that he once stood for. He no longer was a slave owner. He had rejected that life, and he had come to live in the same area as you, in the north. He had even come to confide in you about how miserable he had been as a slave owner because he knew it was going against the law of Christ. And so now you had become equals. You had become friends and your neighbors. And one day he invites you over for dinner, invites you over for dinner. And so your family is enjoying their time with his family. Your kids are laughing and playing with his kids. Your, 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 the wives are, are carrying on and discussing and celebrating how their, their freedom together in Christ. And all of a sudden, at the home of your former slave owner, he gets a knock on the door. He goes to answer the door, and he opens it up, and guess who's standing there? A former friend, slave owner buddy from the South, who still owns slaves to this day. And in that moment, he kind of just forgets everything he's come to know through his faith in Christ. And the next moment he walks into that dining room where you're all gathered enjoying one another's company, totally different person. And he begins to treat you like a slave. And he begins to fall back into his own slavery, his own slavery to sin and oppression to sin, all because of somebody who's looking over his shoulder. 
think when we understand the gravity that the situa- of the situation that Paul was confronted with, it starts to come into focus for us. The contrast between the bright light of gospel freedom and the darkest dark of slavery to sin and to man's tra- traditions, when you detect on the radar this incoming ballistic missile that is, af- that is attacking your very freedom that you have in Christ, you understand that Paul was on a rescue mission. Paul was on a rescue mission. In 1 Timothy 5.20, he tells Timothy, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. That is, stand in fear of God, not in fear of man. This was, for Paul, a rescue mission, not just for the local church in Antioch from the misguided leadership of Peter, but a rescue mission for his brothers in Christ. Peter and Barnabas, a mission to rescue them from the slavery that they were falling back into, as well as a rescue mission for the future of the entire Christian church. Paul was acting in step with the truth of the gospel. For Paul, it went like this. If Christ died to save an enemy of the gospel like myself, who am I to withhold that same free grace and mercy to anyone on the basis of their ethnicity? And further, how could he allow Peter, his brother in Christ, who had been set free from the chains of sin himself, to submit again to this yoke of slavery that is the fear of man. I think this is what gospel courage looks like. And sometimes it looks like confronting the sin of those that we love the most. If you see your neighbor's house on fire, you don't just sit there and watch it burn, right? You warn, you look for a rescue opportunity, you call for help. Paul's going to tell us later in Galatians chapter 6, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That brings me to the final lesson for us this morning. The same gospel, the same gospel which possessed Paul, which gave him the courage to rescue Peter and the Antioch church, is the same gospel that is big enough to restore you and me whenever we conduct ourselves in a way that is out of sync, that is out of step with the truth of the gospel. The gospel is powerful enough to give us courage in the face of fear. And at the same time, the gospel is big enough, big enough to cover us whenever we cower in the face of fear like Peter. You see, Peter just like Paul, was a trophy of God's grace and mercy. And this would not be Peter's final act. And the best I can understand from these events here in Antioch is that they took place before the famous Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, when once again, the Jerusalem church, along with Peter, confirms that yes, the gospel is freely accessible to all through faith in Jesus Christ. The church would not be torn over this issue. God was gracious to preserve the church. And both Paul and Peter would continue preaching this free gospel, both to Jews and Gentiles, up until their death. We even learn in 2 Peter that Peter, he he writes boldly at the end of his life, in his greeting, he says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And in the same letter, he's commanding those who will read, he's commending those who will read this letter to Paul's teaching and saying, listen to this guy. He knows what he's talking about. Second Peter 3, 15 and 16. So we see ample evidence that Peter would be restored even after this moment of weakness. So what we need to understand here is that through Christ's death on the cross and the forgiveness of sins, God is both merciful to us to preserve his church and our freedom as well as to preserve us. Even when we do something so boneheaded as to bring shame to his name, shame to his bride, shame to his church. Every time we shrink back from declaring or displaying the gospel, every time we withhold forgiveness from another, every time we harbor anger towards one another, every time we place shared interests with others above our shared identity in Christ, every time we see a brother or sister in need and turn the other way, every time we see someone mistreated and we fail to intervene, every time we allow members in the body to openly persist in sin and do nothing about it, Every time we bite and devour one another because they have done something we simply don't like. Every time we act like this, we are acting in a way that is out of step with the truth of the gospel. But this is our hope. This is our hope. That God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in our moment of weakness, denying Christ, Christ still went to the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Romans 8, 1 and 2, Therefore there is now no condemnation. Hear that? Paul said, Peter, you stand condemned. Not in the ultimate sense, though, because Christ paid for that sin as well. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You no longer have to sin. Because you've been set free in Christ. Do you remember that final conversation between Jesus and Peter? Before Jesus ascended into heaven. Just imagine the shame that Peter was feeling in that moment. Probably not even able to look at Jesus because he knew he had denied him three times. Because the fear of man had crippled his gospel courage. Do you remember that conversation? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And you can just imagine the three times and what that must have triggered in Peter's mind, the three times that he denied Christ. The third time, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Even in this moment of great weakness, of cowering in the face of man, Christ is there ready to offer him complete forgiveness, complete restoration, even entrusting him with continuing to lead his flock. So brothers and sisters, 
We should pray that we would all have a gospel courage, a boldness to share the gospel and to stand up for Christ like Paul. We should definitely pray that God would give us that boldness. And we should also pray that God would deliver us from the snare of the fear of man and that we would always find our refuge, our safety in the Lord. But let's also remember this. When we find ourselves caught in the trap, when we find ourselves in the snare of the evil one, denying Christ, shrinking back, feeling ashamed, not sharing the gospel where there's an opportunity, not standing up for Christ when someone is, is scoffing at his name, when we find ourselves having succumbed to the fear of man, let's remember to run with confidence to Jesus in prayer, where there is always mercy and forgiveness they're waiting for us. The Bible, we're told that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So this gospel we preach, this gospel we believe is big enough, big enough to give us the courage to conquer the fear of man, but it's also big enough to cover our weaknesses when we shrink back in fear. So let's run to Jesus this morning and ask him to forgive us when we have shrunk back.